Well, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7 as we endeavor to make our way through the entire book of Romans from uh, chapter 1 all the way to the end. We've encapsulated or summarized the book of Romans by four buildings. If you've been around for a little bit, you remember that chapters 1 through 5, we were in the courthouse, God's law, condemnation, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, justification by faith presented there, chapters 1 through 5. And then in chapter 6 through 8, the natural question comes, okay, Paul, okay, Steve, you're telling us that God says your past, well, that's dealt with by the forgiveness of the appeasement of the wrath of God by the blood of Jesus Christ that was taken care of on the cross. Your past is forgiven. Not only that, but you're justified. You're made righteous by Christ. And that takes care of your future. God didn't leave your own righteousness to you because you would fail at being righteous. So he's taking care of that. He's made you righteous in Christ. And so chapter 6 through 8, the question is, if my past is taken care of and I'm righteous in the future, then what does it really matter how I live? I mean, if I'm forgiven and I'm righteous, then it seems that what I do on a day-to-day basis doesn't really matter. So can I just live however I want? And so chapter 6 through 8, we're in the power plant talking about the power of God's grace to change our lives. And I think this is such an important set of chapters because some of you were born again into a new law. You came into church and you were hit with legalism right out of the starting gate. You decided you wanted to draw close to God, God drawing you to Himself, and you ended up in a legalistic church or born into a family where you were part of a legalistic church. Do you know what I mean when I say legalism? Legalism is, here's what the laws say. Here's the set of spiritual rules by which we obtain God's blessing. If we do the right things in the right way, then God will bless us. But if we don't, well, look out. And that completely misunderstands and misses grace. So the book of Romans is about God's amazing grace, not God's amazing law. Of course, God's law is perfect and righteous, and we'll see that as we go through chapter 7. Chapter 7, by the way, is all about the law. If I'm saved by God's grace and His attitude toward me is always blessing. Now, He disciplines those He loves. We know that. But that's because He He spanks kids because He loves them. Not because He's punishing us. Not because He's hateful toward us. Not because we've blown it and now we're getting what's due to us. He loves us. God's people have to get a hold of the fact that God's grace, being saved by grace, means that God blesses you. He has blessed you. He wants to bless you. He wants to do good for you. And it's not based on your behavior. Isn't that great news? He loves you unconditionally. But many of you are familiar with families of conditional love, where we only love you if you do what's right. And you've certainly experienced churches where it's always been conditional acceptance, conditional love. If you wear the right thing and have the right Bible and go to the right places and don't do the wrong things and you don't do that and you don't do this and you don't do the other thing and you keep all of these spiritual regulations, then you're loved. But if you don't, you're out. You're out. And so I know even as we talk about this, it's so unfamiliar that you'll even feel yourself going, Wait a second. Can he say that? I mean, can he really say that? Like that can't, can that really be true? I mean, can we really be free? And the answer is absolutely, but not free to sin. And we'll see how that works out. Remember, 
chapter 6, the whole key to everything is that when you died with Christ, when you get saved, you get joined together with Christ. That's the only way to get saved, is to be joined together with Christ. You're just, boom, bonded to him, attached to him, one with him. And so when he dies, you die. And when he lives, you live. Everything he does, you get. That's why you're righteous, because he's righteous and you're attached to him. And that's key because that same grace that saves you and attaches you to Christ also transforms your life. So really the key to the future relationship with the law, to why I don't sin even though I'm free to do it, I don't because I'm in love and I'm joined to Christ. And so a person whose life is transformed, one of the most important things you can do in your life is choose carefully who you hang out with, right? You know that who you connect yourself with affects how you live. That's why the Bible says, you know, be careful how you choose your friends. You know, bad company corrupts good morals. So if you're attached to Christ, that's life changing. That's transformational. It's not that I want to sin and I can't. I lose the desire to. There's a struggle there, and we'll talk about that. But there's a desire to sin that just begins to go away. Why? Because my focus is all on Jesus, not on what I'm not supposed to do. It's changing my focus. And so chapter 7 brings us back to this place of talking about the law. He said in chapter 6, the transformation happens because this new relationship, the first one, it's not my old master that was sin, but my new master. I'm serving somebody new. I got a new job, so to speak. I have a new employer. And that changes what I do. The new employer asks different things of me than my old sin employer. Sin used to ask me to do unrighteous things. But Jesus asked me to do righteous things. And if I obey him, it changes my life. Well, that's a relationship, right? It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. And this next part, chapter 7, Paul gives us another relationship to use as an example of what he's trying to say and explain to us. And every ounce of my pastoral heart wants you to get this because you've been in churches that are dead because they're legalistic. Nobody's happy. Nobody's joyful. Everybody walks on eggshells. Everybody's just busy trying to snip out other people's sins. Everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else and trying to look righteous. But behind the scenes, everybody treats each other horribly. You've been there. I see some of you. Anybody been there? And that's exactly what this is meant to cure. To cure. If you get this, it will change your Christian life forever. So you ready? Chapter 7, verse 1 begins with the simple word, or. If your Bible doesn't have it, it should be there. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So Paul's presenting to us another principle. And he begins with the word, or, because he's really taking us back. He started this explanation of being connected to Christ, and he's taking us page back to chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. He said, what then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. And then he says, verse 16, do you not know that whom you present yourself slaves to obey, that you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether sin leading to death and, and so on. So he says, hey, gang, you've got to know something. One of the cheapest problems is when we're ignorant. There are things that when you know them, they're life-changing when you understand what that means for you. I grew up watching like G.I. Joe cartoons. Anybody remember G.I. Joe? 
the cartoon. Like I had the action figures with the kung fu grip and all that. G.I. Joes were awesome. But then they had a cartoon. And I always remember at the end of the cartoon, there was like this little public service announcement. You know, don't talk to strangers. And G.I. Joe would be talking to these little kids and say, no, don't talk to strangers. And they would say, oh, thanks, G.I. Joe. Now we know. And then G.I. Joe would give them the wink. And knowing is half the battle. And it is half the battle. If you don't know, you can't do it. Doing is the other half the battle. So just knowing something is the start. And he wants us to know you can choose your master. And he wants us to know that death, listen carefully, that death releases you from law. Death releases you from law. That's the only way to get out from under the law. Interesting article I read says, you're dead, that won't stop the debt collector. The banks need another bailout and countless homeowners cannot handle their mortgage payments, but one group is paying its bills, the dead. Dozens of specially trained agents work on the third floor of DCM services, calling up the dear departed's next of kin and kindly asking if they want to settle the balance on a credit card or bank loan, or perhaps make that final utility bill or cell phone payment. The people on the other end of the line, those grieving relatives, have no legal obligation to assume the debt of a spouse, sibling, or parent, but they take responsibility for it anyway. One man said, I'm out of work now, to be honest with you, and money is very tight for us. One man declared on a recent phone call after he was apprised of his late mother-in-law's $280 credit card bill, but he promised to pay it $15 a month. You see, for debt collectors, dead people are the newest frontier and one of the healthiest parts of the industry. And what people don't know is that they have no obligation, no legal obligation to pay the debt of someone who's dead. It was their debt. I mean, unless you co-signed for it or something like that, but if it was their debt, their credit card and their name, they're not obligated to pay it and nor are you. But that's the point Paul's trying to make. You can't get money from someone who's dead. You know, when you signed the contract for the credit card, you would agree to pay in under certain terms. But when you die, they can't collect from you anymore. And that really bothers them. Doesn't bother you. You don't care anymore. Now, I'm not saying go run up your debt, but you get the point Paul is making. He says, look, or do you not know? Here's the second thing that you need to know. Don't you know? And he says, I speak to those who know the law. Who do you think he's speaking to when he says, I speak to those who know the law? He's speaking to Jews primarily. He's speaking to everybody. We all understand law. But remember, in the early church, it was combined of two distinct groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And the Jews were born into the law. They were born into Jewish families, law-keeping families, and they were born into that. And then they thought Gentiles, non-Jews, to be right with God, had to become Jews and keep the law to be in a good relationship with God. And the whole battle of the early church was, do they really? Does a non-Jewish person have to keep the law to be right with God? And the early church's answer was no. They don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to go through the rituals. They don't have to do all those, the food laws and all that stuff. But the Jews were determined to bring them under. It was such a part of who they were that they were determined to make the Gentiles come in under the law. So now he's speaking to the Jews and he's saying, look, I'm speaking to you that know the law. You understand some things. And one of the things that he's going to tell them they understand is that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So that's his premise, okay? But if a man dies, the law doesn't have dominion over him anymore. And he's going to show that and he's going to use marriage, the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
He's going to use that as an example. Okay, you ready? You with me to watch how he walks through this argument? Verse 2 says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. So that's the illustration that he's using. He's using marriage in the seventh commandment to show this. When we get married, you know, we say till death do us part. Those words don't carry a whole lot of weight anymore, but that's the intention of the law is that two people get married and that's a commitment for their lives. Now, when they die, they're not committed to be married anymore. This is a question Jesus had to answer. If a woman have seven husbands in the resurrection, which one will he be married to? And the answer is, well, you err, you're ignorant, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. In the resurrection, we're like angels, not given in marriage, not being married. So it's the marriage thing is an earthly thing. It's an earthly covenant. And when you get married, you say, we're married till death do us part. Now, Paul's not teaching on marriage and remarriage and divorce and all that. So don't go there with this passage. This is not a teaching primarily on marriage. He's using things that we all understand by nature. We understand that when a woman gets married, then the two become one flesh, and that's a lifelong relationship. It's a covenant. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Okay, so if your spouse dies, you don't have to get remarried, but according to God's law, you are free to get remarried. Death breaks the relationship. You're free to be remarried. And he explains this a little further. Verse 3, he gives another further illustration of this. He says, so then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, what's that called, gang? That's called adultery. Now you've got two husbands, and that's bad. That's against the law. So if then while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. The law will condemn her and label her and judge her if she marries another man while she's married to the first. But if her husband dies and she gets remarried, she's free from that law, so she's not an adulteress, though she's married another man. So again, simple illustration. You take a woman, in one scenario, she marries another person, and she's called an adulteress, but in another scenario, she marries another man, and she's not. And the only difference is that in one scenario, her husband's still alive, and the other scenario, he's passed away, he's died. Then she's not condemned by the law when she remarries. So Paul's kind of building this illustration because he wants to apply it to us. Now watch what happens. Therefore, verse 4 says, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. So now he makes the application. Now he goes in for the kill. He makes the point that he's trying to make. He's saying the way that you recognize that you're free from law is through death. So it's as if we take this example, and and this is kind of a challenging illustration, and many people have labored over this, and the whole chapter many pastors will avoid uh, teaching on because it can be uh, somewhat challenging and somewhat confusing unless you follow it through. So she says, look, in the first example, this woman is married to the man, and we'll call him Mr. Law. That's her husband. She's married to Mr. Law. And Mr. Law is perfect. Mr. Law never does anything wrong. All hairs are in place. His clothes are always perfect. He always is right on time. You can't fault him for anything. And you've married this guy. And you're the wife. 
Now, the problem with Mr. Law is he's very demanding. He demands a lot of himself and he demands a lot of you. And so when you first get married, you're excited. You think, oh, this is going to be great. You know, I'm going to, I'm marrying this great, spectacular guy. He's perfect. The problem is you're not. And the more you hang around with him, the more you try to please him, as sometimes you do, but then the minute you mess up, the minute you burn the toast, he judges you, he condemns you. And you kind of brush it off at first, but as time goes on, this begins to really wear on you. Because not only is he condemning you, he never tells you he loves you. He's cold. He's insensitive. He's merciless. And over time, what do you think begins to happen to your heart? Do you think you start to love him more because he's that way? Or do you think you start to love him less? Now you're stuck with him. You can't get out of it. Really affects your life. You know, then when he tells you to do something, you begin to really feel rebellious against him. Every time he wants you to do something, you're thinking of how you can get back at him. Begins to breed some anger in your heart. You're frustrated with him. Now, let me just take a pause for a second here. And I want to ask you, this is how some homes are. And I just want to talk just on a practical level about having a home full of legalism where there's no love. Some of you grew up with parents, mom or dad, maybe especially for the young guys or dads, could never please him. Never told you he loved you. Never told you you did a good job. Never commented on that. Was hard to please. Seemed like you could never, am I talking to anybody here? Just could never do enough. That's what it's like to be under law. You can never do enough. You'll never please it fully because you're inconsistent. Because you're sinful. And so this is how this woman lives. And finally, she goes, I wish I could kill this guy, but I can't. And I don't get any ideas. Reading the Song of Solomon years ago, the comment is made to the woman in that Bible book. You are a garden locked up. That's the word to the Shunammite woman there in the Song of Solomon. You are a garden locked up. When a man marries a woman, she's a garden locked up. And his love for her brings out and draws out her beauty. Not his oppression of her, not his demands from her, not his rules that he makes for her and imposes upon her. That just crushes her spirit. You see, people... We aren't loved because we're beautiful. We become beautiful when we're loved. That's the great secret of Christianity. Jesus Christ draws beauty out of you. He doesn't love you because you're beautiful. Trust me. I know it myself. He makes us beautiful. So see, she's been married to Mr. Law. And what do you think she looks like? How do you think she looks when she goes down to the grocery store? Do you think she just looks pretty beaten down? Pretty discouraged? Pretty depressed? Well, the problem is the law, Paul will go on to tell us, the law is perfect. The law is eternal. So she's stuck married to this guy whom she can never please, who never compliments her, who only points out when she's done something wrong, and she's stuck with him because he won't die. So Paul says, through death, and if death is what releases you from the marriage, you're stuck. But then what happens is that, look what we said here, therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law. So in the illustration, it's the woman married to the husband. The husband dies, but now he has to flip that around because the husband, the law won't die, but you did. That happened to you when you got saved. He says, you died. So you have become dead to Mr. Law. He didn't die. You did. When did I die? You died when you joined yourself to Christ. 
you died with Christ. So you died to the law, to that system of rules and spiritual regulations by which you try to obtain God's favor. You died to that whole system. But you didn't die so that you could just do whatever you wanted. Look what it says here. You died to the law through the body of Christ. When Christ's body was crucified, it was as if you were crucified with him in order that or so that you could be remarried, married to another, married to him. To who him? To him, Mr. Grace. Oh, man. So you died the law, but then you got resurrected. That's good news. So in your new life, you're not going to join yourself back up to Mr. Law. You see, the Gentiles, the Jews wanted the Gentiles to come under the law. It was hard for them. It's like, why would you want to bring these people who aren't familiar with the law? That tithing means nothing to them. Sabbath means nothing to them. They haven't grown up under the law. Why would you want to bring them under that? Instead, they can be married to Christ. Everybody in the church, unity comes when everybody follows not different sets of rules. Because depending on which church you go to, they have different things. This church, well, we're all about keeping the Sabbath. That church, well, we're about wearing shirts that don't have buttons or whatever. You know, everybody's got their thing. And how do you know? You know, you're right in this church, but then you go to that church and they got a different set of things that they hold to. And it's crazy. But then Jew and Gentile both united, not under the law and not under immorality, but both united where? Under Christ. We meet there. And so you're married to Mr. Grace. Now, when you first get married, do you think you're a little gun shy? You think you're a little, like you start to cook breakfast and you're waiting for the hammer to drop. And you burn the toast and you're just cringing because you know what comes next. Fear, condemnation, shame, guilt. But when Mr. Grace gets up for breakfast, the first thing he does, he smells the burnt toast and he comes over to you and he tells you, do you know how beautiful you look this morning? I love you so much. I know you burnt the toast. We'll get it next time. Here's how you operate the toaster and he, he helps you figure it out. And at first you're like, whoa, this is strange. This is weird. But in time, you realize that he's consistent, that this is not just a, a show, that he's always that way. He loves you unconditionally. And he tells you he loves you. And he shows you he loves you. He brings you flowers. He buys you gifts. The problem is you feel so ugly all the time. Your last husband made you feel horrible and ugly and like a loser. And you don't know that anybody could ever love you. And then this guy, who also is perfect and beautiful, he starts to love you and you start to heal. He's gracious. He doesn't slam you when you make a mistake. He doesn't jump on you when you fall. He picks you up. He cleans you up. And his love begins to heal you. And pretty soon, what do you think happens in the heart of that wife? You think she pretty soon starts to want to do for him because she's loved? Now, it's not about, well, here's the rules. You know, the, Mr. Law gave you the set of rules. When I get up in the morning, I want my coffee to be at 102 degrees. I want my toast to be lightly brown. Here's the gradient chart to, to measure it. It's got to be this brown right here. The butter has to be uniformly spread, reaching all the edges with just the right amount of jelly. The eggs must be over medium, not too hard, not too soft. And anything short of that doesn't work. That, he gives you the set of rules. But now you're married to Mr. Grace. And when Mr. Grace tells you he likes breakfast, well, how do you like your eggs? Well, I like my eggs over medium and I like, 
and you want to do it. You want to do it because you want to please Him. Because you love Him. Because you love Him. Do you know that love makes you do crazy things? Man, I used to know this guy, and he's a big-time smoker, and I met him a couple years after I'd known him first. He told me he'd stop smoking. It's like, you stopped smoking? Really? Why? What, what happened? Ah, uh, I'm dating this girl, and she doesn't like me smoking. <laughs> she doesn't like the way it tastes, you know, when she kisses me, so I've stopped smoking. Like, you quit smoking? You know, we tried to get you to quit smoking, you know, for your health, and all. but then he gets his girlfriend and falls in love, and then all of a sudden he's quit smoking because he wants to please her. You know, I've been married 22 years. When I first met Helga, you just want to be together. You, know, you just want to spend time. You just want to be in fellowship together. I've married a woman that plays ice hockey. And so here I am, you know, this cool young guy, and I'm going with my wife, driving three hours to Northern Virginia so she can play ice hockey, and I'm carrying her hockey bag. All the other guys walking in with their hockey bags, you know. And here I am carrying my girlfriend's hockey bag. You know? <laughs> the things you do for love, right? So you're married to another. Now, what kind of rules are you going to put with love? How do you put law to love? How do you write a set of rules for marriage? You see, love fulfills the law. See, so it's not that we're going to live lawless. Look what he says next. He says, therefore, my brethren, you've become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, so that we can bear fruit to God. Legalism is unfruitful. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's superficial. What good does it do to go to church to worship on Saturday if you do not love your neighbor? The whole law is summed up. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, tell me how that looks. That's where we're desperate because we want to know we're doing it right. So we try to then put all these rules. Well, here's what love looks like. You can't put rules to that. And so we talk about tithing. Well, I tithe. I give my 10%. But doesn't John say, how do you see your brother in need and shut your heart up from them? I mean, there's something inside of you now. Jesus has come on the inside. You're joined to him. There's something inside that moves you with love. You can't do it in the flesh. That's what he says next. Look what happens. You want to bear fruit to God. You want to have a fruitful life. Legalism just is destructive and unfruitful and superficial He says, for when we were in the flesh, meaning before we were saved, before we cared for the things of God, before we were born again, when we're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So maybe I was wrong in saying it was unfruitful. It bore fruit, but fruit that was deadly. It killed spirituality. It killed love. Have you noticed that, that legalism kills love? Matter of fact, in Europe, you'll find this surprising. In Europe, they've been experimenting in some places where they remove all of the traffic laws. And I know immediately you're like, what? Can they do that? This is the article. It says, removing all traffic laws makes town safer. Does that make sense? A town in Germany has abolished all traffic laws, signs, and crosswalk. Sounds like a recipe for bumper cars meets demolition derby not according to town officials. In fact, getting rid of all the laws has had the exact opposite effect by allowing drivers and pedestrians to make all of their own decisions about what's safe. One stretch of road that used to see 45 accidents a year and traffic jams has become smooth and safe and drivers have slowed down. The idea is that everyone on the road, including pedestrians and cyclists, have equal rights, no sidewalks, 
no crosswalks. The local police say that without rules, people think for themselves. See, what happens with law, law excuses me from love. See, if I'm keeping this rule over here, then I feel like, hey, I'm good with God. Therefore, I don't feel any necessity. I've tithed. I've given my 10%. I checked that off the list, give my 10%. Then I see someone in need and hey, I tithe. I'm good with God. I can be completely unmoved by that. Jesus talks about it this Sabbath day. He comes up against a lot of opposition regarding the Sabbath, and they say, well, he shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. Wait a second. Haven't they misunderstood maybe the the Sabbath day? He says, look, what if your donkey falls in a ditch on the Sabbath? You can just let it sit there and suffer? You're going to get it out. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But they had stuck to the letter of the law, Paul will say, instead of understanding the spirits. And this is how God's people have lived. Many of you have lived under this sense of law, which I just do the right things at the right times and I'm good with God, but no sense of, hey, loving my neighbor. So when we're married to Christ and we are loved, then through love, we serve him back. We love because he first loved us. And when you're in that kind of relationship, it just changes everything. You see, when we were in the flesh, the law aroused sinful passions that were at work in our members, work in our body. The law has that effect. It arouses passion. I mean, if you come to my house and you plop a box of Oreo cookies on the counter and you say, now, Steve, don't eat those. They're for later. Those are for somebody else. Don't eat those. Do you know what I'm going to be thinking about all day? I'm going to be focused on Oreo cookies all day. Why? Because you put them there and you said I couldn't have them. That's what law does. Law tells you, don't eat this, don't have that, don't touch that. So you spend your whole life going, I can't do this. But that's what you're thinking about. You're thinking about the thing that you're not supposed to do and it makes you want to do it. That's why the law is so discouraging and frustrating because you're focused on a rule that you're not breaking And you become so focused on it, it's all you can think about. And then what happens next is you end up breaking it. You know what I'm saying. Some of you have uh, New Year's resolutions. You've started a diet. Now, you had no problem in certain areas until you started the diet. Then once you say, I'm not going to eat certain times or certain foods, that's the very food you crave. You can't stand not having it because you're thinking about it all the time. So the law in telling you not to do something actually arouses that rebellious part of you that wants what it can't have. There's a little rebel inside of you. And when people are told what they can't have, that rebel says, who are you to tell me what I can't have? Right? Have you found that? Anybody have kids? You tell a kid what they can't do, and that's the very thing they want to do. You tell them, no, don't do that. Don't, you can't have, that's not your toy. If you tell them that's not your toy, there, there can be a hundred toys in the room. That's the toy they want. You tell Adam and Eve in the garden, There's one fruit you can't have. What's the fruit they wanted? What's the fruit Satan wanted to point her to? That one, they had tons of fruit, tons of things to eat, but it's the one thing they couldn't have, that's what they wanted. And that speaks to the the rebelliousness. But look at verse six. But now we have been delivered from the law. We weren't delivered to keep the law. We weren't saved so you could keep the law. Do you see what this passage is saying? You died to the law so you could be married to Christ. Died to the law. 
A lot of churches still preaching law. A lot of churches still beating up people if they don't tithe, if they don't do this or do that. If you're in love, if my wife has a need, I love her. I want to serve her through love. I don't come to church because some rule tells me I have to. God's filled my heart with love. I love coming to church. I'd be here even if I wasn't a pastor. I love it. I enjoy it. The Spirit of God draws me to the Spirit in you guys. But we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held, literally held back or held down by. The law actually holds you back. The law actually holds you down. Being married to Christ sets you free, free to love people. I mean, there's some crazy stuff that goes on in churches in the name of doing what's right and pleasing God, and it's not pleasing to God at all. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The letter of the law, meaning here's the strict interpretation and holding on to, here's what the law says, and that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to stick to it, and it misses it. He says, no, it's not about the oldness of the letter. The oldness of the letter, let me tell you about the oldness of the letter. The letter of the law, you know and I know that you go out there on the Route 15 and there's a double yellow line. What does that double yellow line mean? It means you don't cross that. What if I'm driving down the road and there's a state trooper behind me and I'm just kind of, I just go weave over into that other lane, I weave back. What thing's going to happen? I'm going to get a ticket for reckless because I crossed the double yellow. And he's probably going to give me a, breathalyzer test at the same time, but I just felt like it. Just crossed over, right? But now, so the letter of the law says I get a ticket for crossing the double yellow, but now I'm driving down the road, Route 15, and out from the courthouse area comes a a kid chasing a ball into the street, running over into the street. And now I got a choice to make. I might have to break the law to save a life, which is more important. You see, legalism says The law is first. Love says people are first. Think about David eating the sacred bread at the tabernacle. And Jesus is confronted about that and talks about it. He says, hey, remember what David did when he was hungry and they ate the sacred bread? David had a need. He was hungry. But the bread is sacred. But he's hungry. But the bread is sacred. But he's hungry. But the bread is the bread. The bread. See, legalism gets the attention off of caring for people and on to keeping rule. Love gets the attention on loving God and therefore loving people. The big question you need to ask is what does love demand? Not what does law demand. That changes your life. So that we should serve, we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. I wonder if some of you are still serving in the oldness of the letter. Your focus is all about, I gotta do, you know, God's always waiting to punish me. I always gotta, gotta be thinking about this. And oh, it's all about the rules. And it's been an excuse to not love people. Love demands way more than law does, doesn't it? Love will take you higher, love will set you free. When you love somebody, the, the extent that, that you'll go to to please them is unimaginable. Changes the motivation for doing things, doesn't it? 